You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. And I have Dr. Jake Kushner. Uh, Dr. Kushner, thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate you being here. Um, happy to help. You know, if we could just, maybe just a brief, you know, you have an extensive background, extensive history, but briefly, what first got you interested in type 1 diabetes? Well, um, I'm a pediatric endocrinologist, and we take care of kids with hormonal disorders uh, throughout the body, but as it turns out, type 1 diabetes is very common. It's the lion's share of what we do, probably half. And then the other half is a bunch of other sundry disorders. And as a young physician, when I was training at Boston Children's and Harvard Medical School, trying to learn about pediatric endocrinology, I met all these families. Their children were newly diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And I just got to know them and I got to know the problem. And it just seemed really um, really compelling. Like there was a ton of unmet need. And so the more I learned about it, the more I, I realized that I, I wanted to devote my career to it. So what, what's the prevalence of type 1 diabetes in children? So type 1 diabetes is uh, about about one in 300 children. And so uh, across the United States, there's at least 1.5 uh, million people with type 1 diabetes. Around the world, it's probably uh, easily over 10 million. And then there's a bunch of other cases of what I would call cryptic type 1 or adult onset type 1, where people actually have what they believe to be type 2 diabetes, but they're thin and they don't require that much injected insulin. And in fact, many of them have type 1, they just don't know it. So it's possible that if you uh, if you add up all those kids with type 1 diabetes in the United States and adults who used to be kids with type 1 diabetes, plus adults who have this more uh, unusual adult onset form of type 1 diabetes, it could be mm, two or more million people. It's a serious problem. Wow, okay. And what's, what are some of the fundamental differences between type 1 and type 2? So what happens is in type 1 diabetes, there's a... Uh, absolute deficiency in the ability to make insulin. So this is an autoimmune disease like autoimmune thyroid disease or autoimmune adrenal disease or pernicious anemia. And what happens is the uh, T cells uh, in the immune system get confused and they attack 
these cells in the pancreas, this, which are the, in a structure called the islets of Langerhans. And insulin is this key hormone that's produced only in the pancreatic beta cells of the islets of Langerhans. And insulin is this uh, really powerful signal that tells our bodies that we're in times of plenty. So uh, if a non-diabetic person um, eats a meal, insulin goes way, way up and uh, and drives uh, the uh, partitioning of all those nutrients into the body. It helps you to store the nutrients that you've just consumed. And so it says, for instance, to the muscles, increase the glucose uptake into the muscle, and then you store that glucose as glycogen. So that's a storage product of glucose, and the same thing happens in uh, in the fat. Uh, where glucose is taken up by the fat, but it's stored as fat in, in the adipocytes. So it's a key hormone that signals that nutrients are plentiful, and it goes up and down at very dramatic dynamic levels. Um, in its lowest state when someone's fasting and also uh, trying to um, minimize stress, you can get insulin down to almost very, very low, almost undetectable levels. And during that time, you begin to mobilize the fat. So it's a so-called catabolic state where you're breaking down energy, moving energy from fat to use it to be able to save your metabolism and, and fuel your brain. So again, it, it, okay. insulin goes up and down. And uh, in autoimmune type 1 diabetes, the T cells uh, get confused. They attack uh, the pancreas. You lose the ability to make insulin. And without it, blood glucose rises. Um, and I would contrast that with type 2 diabetes, where there's a relative deficiency, not an absolute deficiency in insulin. So uh, type 2 diabetes is generally associated with people who are uh, overweight or insulin resistant or both, sometimes associated with inactivity. And in type 2 diabetes, people will require medicines to try to improve their blood glucose. They don't make enough insulin they can also take more insulin uh, as a treatment. But again, in type 2 diabetes, you make some, not enough, and it's not enough for the for the absolute requirements, which are dramatically increased. In type 1 diabetes, it's not about insulin resistance. It's really about the inability to make insulin. And uh, the problem with type 1 diabetes is the uh, generally the, the, you know, the primary therapy is injected insulin. There's no other alternative primary therapy. So these folks are healthy and they're cruising around and they're living life and then they uh, start to lose weight and they're drinking a lot and peeing a lot and then they go to their primary care doctor who notices that there's sugar in the urine which is because the sugar in the blood has risen to such high levels that it's spilling into the urine and then the doctor or healthcare team pretty quickly makes a diagnosis of diabetes and uh, and then the problem is you've got to replace insulin and it's a dynamic hormone it doesn't last very long and um, you have to inject it for meals and it's not a simple formula of uh, take this amount of insulin once a day and forget it it's much more complicated than right. that um, a couple of questions here so can type 2 ever lead to type 1 can you you know cause insulin resistance to such a degree that I don't know your body sees um, maybe the prevalence of insulin is uh, an insult and then therefore it attacks the pancreatic beta cells or is there no transition well, from two to one? That's a good question. I don't know of any uh, autoimmunity of the beta cells that occurs late in, in type 2, but there is something, the, the amount of insulin that people make in type 2 diabetes varies and it's on a spectrum. And And by the way, many of the genes that determine the risk for type 2 diabetes appear to be 
in pathways that may influence either how many beta cells you have or how well those beta cells work. And so um, the thought is that some people may end up on a spectrum where they have very low insulin secretion reserve. And in the face of a lot of insulin resistance, they become very deficient in the ability to make insulin. And so they will start off on one pill and then they go to two pills and then from two pills to three, and then their doctor has to give up and actually inject insulin. And there, most of the people around the world who take insulin, in fact, have type 2 diabetes, not type 1, because type 2 diabetes is so much more common. There's uh, mm. probably 10 to 20-fold more type 2 diabetes on the planet than type 1. And many people with type 2 will eventually uh, progress to the point where they require injected insulin. Do you do you study type two as a as a mechanism to understand type one better, or is there plenty well, enough surrounding type one that you you don't have to worry about it? Well, I've been a, a basic scientist for much of my career and have floated in between all of these questions, but focusing on very basic uh, pathways of how the pancreatic beta cell works. And so I um I actually trained in a insulin signaling lab that focused on models of type 2 diabetes. And in the process, um, that lab had made a pivotal discovery, which was that a mouse that's missing a key component of an insulin signaling pathway um, eventually has a type 1-like phenotype. So it starts off with a type 2 phenotype where it's very insulin resistant. But within uh, a few months, those mice uh, these are this is a so-called IRS2 knockout mouse. They develop they lose the ability to make enough insulin and they develop frank diabetes. And so I was interested in this topic and went to work with my mentor, Dr. Morris White, who's a Howard Hughes investigator uh, at the Johnson Diabetes Center, and uh, just fell in love with the beta cell. And so for the rest of my career, I've been focusing on type one and type two and uh, even cystic fibrosis diabetes and even canine diabetes. But again, all around the pancreatic beta cell and what it does and, and how it's maintained and grows and expands. It seems that, um, you know, type 1 diabetics, I mean, they have to be much more careful with everything they eat and how they apply their insulin and what kinds of insulin, et cetera. So it seems like, you know, anyone that gets type 2 should be partnered with someone that has type 1 to learn from them. Yeah, they, the, they're like the, uh, the unintended experts of it after having it for a number of years. Yeah, that's right. So people who live with type 1, um, so again, we, we sort of alluded to this earlier, they wake up and they will check their blood sugar um, either with a finger prick or with a continuous glucose monitor, and they need some long-acting insulin, and so they would inject a very long-acting form of insulin, or they might even have an insulin pump that continuously infuses insulin into their bodies, and then figure out some meal and then decide how much insulin that might require. And then they make a whole series of guesses about how much insulin to take over the course of the day. Um, and they can, you can use a little calculator or you can do it in your head, but it's an immense amount of work. And, um, and that intensity of care is relentless. And uh, um, the sad story is that virtually everybody who lives with type 1 diabetes struggles to, uh, just because it's so darn difficult. So... Uh, it's not as simple as I consume this many grams of carbohydrate, therefore I need this many units of insulin. It might be true, sort of, but the problem is there's a huge amount of error or slop in that calculation and just intrinsic to the system. It's not as precise as we would hope. And so the end result is that the larger the carb meal, 
the more the variance on the back end. If you wake up in the morning, you have type 1 diabetes, and you eat uh, French toast with uh, with um, maple syrup and uh, whipped cream with sugar in it, and maybe even some chocolate chips and an orange juicer. If you calculate the carbs in that meal, well, I mean, you're going to eyeball it, right? And you might say, okay, well, this is 105 grams of carbohydrate. But in truth, it's 105 plus or minus 70. (laughs) And then you're coming up with a dose of insulin that's just a a wild guess. And so you throw that guess at this giant pile of carbohydrates and you hope for the best. And um, two hours later, you figure out how you did. And your blood sugar might be 50, which is so low that you begin to get symptoms of hyperglycemia. Or 500, where your blood sugar is super high and you're really thirsty and you're in, you run to the bathroom and you just feel kind of strange and woozy. So that inability to predict uh, what your blood sugar is going to be is, is quite burdensome. And I guess, you know, one approach is this to say, well, it's incredibly complicated. I'll try my best. You know, I, I do the best that I can, you know. And um, another approach has been to try to find advanced technologies that might be able to do it for you. Sort of a, you know, like a, a diabetes autopilot. Um, and, you know, in that in that idea, you know, the dream is that someday there will be these like insulin pumps that could measure glucose and, and administer insulin sort of like an autopilot does. But the problem is, you know, when we inject insulin in the body, it takes about 45 minutes or an hour to really begin to work. And these novel short acting forms of insulin might last for three hours. So if it's an autopilot, you know, it's probably only going to work if you're on a if you're driving around someplace where there are no roads um, and you're driving really slowly. But if you're driving in an autopilot in traffic and you can only make changes every hour, you're going to get into an accident. So that well, what about, um, you know, why, why, you know, like I've seen apps, for instance, you can put in everything you eat and it mm-hmm. tells you the approximate macronutrient ratios. Yes. Why not make such a software for type one diabetics where they put in what they're about to eat, yep. the, you know, the amount and everything, and it tells them this is the mix of thing, of insulins you should take. That exists, and they're quite popular. And there are even pumps where you can give the number of grams of carbohydrate, and it does the calculations for you, and you can so-called autobolus. Um, but the problem is it can't calculate the variance. It can't calculate the intrinsic error. And so if, again, if the error is plus or minus, if the standard deviation is plus or minus 30 or 50%, then on the back end, after the meal, the variance can be enormous. And it it really boils down to this inability to precisely identify the number of carbs or the insulin requirement that's associated with a meal. So so what are the variables? One is that if, if you consume fat in a meal, it slows the absorption. So let's say that that the, the the pancakes that I mentioned before have a ton of butter in them. Okay, so they're they're made in lots of butter and and you put butter on top and then you put whipped cream, but it's not it's not artificial whipped cream. It's heavy whipped cream. Well, that heavy whipping cream and the butter that's in there is going to stimulate a hormone um, called cholecystokinin, which is going to slow down gastric emptying in your stomach. And so then the carbs don't make their way to the small intestine with the same velocity that they normally would. So the presence of the fat slows down the, the gastric absorption. And then ultimately, you get a situation where where you have all these carbs that are sitting in your stomach, and eventually they make their way 
um, into into your small intestine, and then the carbs are absorbed into your blood. And uh, people who live with oh, type I 1 see. diabetes, they often will tell you that they just don't know what to do about pizza. If you imagine a big slice of pizza after after it's been sitting for 10 minutes, there's that layer of, of orange grease that sits on the top of the cheese. So it's loaded in fat. And you're consuming a lot of carbs, but you're also getting that fat. And when and when you eat several slices of pizza, you may think you know how many grams of carbohydrate are in the slice of pizza. Um, and even if you precisely know, because you're eating like a frozen pizza, and and you know how it's manufactured, you still don't know the effect of the fat. Of course, if you go out to New York City and you order a slice of Ray's pizza, you know, mm. I don't even know who the original Ray was. There's literally you know <laughs> hundreds or thousands of people who who make Ray's pizza. And the and the size of those slices varies from place to place, and it actually probably varies from slice to slice within the same pie. Because if the guy slices, you know, gives you a generous piece versus sort of cuts you a, a slight, slightly smaller slice. And then there's also I see what you mean in, in the physiology. Yep, is the ratio of the cheese to the sauce, and, and yeah, you also eating if you're eating a complicated meal. Let's say you eat like pancakes with fruit. And then with a lot of butter on them, maybe you have like insoluble fiber, soluble fiber, which can exactly. change things. Right. Uh, okay. That's what you mean. And, so, and the time okay. of the day affects it as well, by the way. And so the insulin requirements Jeez. were more resistant. Um, some people are much more resistant early in the morning than they are later in the day. And then stress as well can do it. And stress alone uh, can alter insulin sensitivity and lack of sleep. <laughs> So it gets really That's bewildering because right. there's all these myriad factors. And the problem is, is somebody who lives with type 1 diabetes, so they'd like to keep it sort of managed and predictable. They're doing their best to try to use these tools to figure out the amount of insulin that's required. And then you have this weird, frustrating uh, loop where you do your best to try to cover the, the meal you want to eat and just eat a normal meal like your friends are. And then two or three hours later, your blood sugar is wacky. And again, you can't predict if it's going to be perfect or slightly off or way, way off or which direction. And that could happen when you're driving on the highway or about to stand up and give a speech, you know, in front of your boss or go out on a date. And that uncertainty is really weighs very heavy on people with PDs. And I'm sure the the cycling of the blood sugar levels, you know, from very high to very low, stresses a lot of you know elements of the body and yeah. causes uh, disease and all kinds of other issues. Yeah, there's actually some speculation that diabetes complications themselves could be the product of in, these intermittent spikes in blood glucose. And in general, believe that the higher the blood sugar, the higher the rate of complications. We know this from type one and type two diabetes. Um, but there are some weird uh, descriptions in the literature of when you expose cells briefly to large amounts of glucose, you can actually see long-lasting changes in gene expression. And so the thought is there may be some chromatin memory and epigenetic changes in the cell that predispose you long-term to diabetic complications. So one really interesting question goes, is it the spikes that you want to try to avoid to prevent complications? And, and we haven't we haven't discussed complications yet, but the the complications for diabetes are primarily cardiovascular, um, heart attack, stroke, 
Um, but there are these other very serious complications also occur, including uh, diabetic retinopathy, which is the number one preventable cause of blindness um, in the U.S., as well as diabetic nephropathy or kidney disease. And it's a very common cause of, of kidney failure. And then, uh, unfortunately, amputations and injuries, as well as uh, peripheral nerve problems, as well as a host of other problems in the GI tract. So these, these I guess complications it shows you are really the, uh, scary. The exquisite level of control that you know healthy people have with their insulin. Yeah, the, the pancreas does an amazing thing, right? Because it uh, even before we eat a meal, when you're just thinking about food, there's actually a priming that occurs, and your pancreas is revving up your system to begin to metabolize the meal. And when you smell food and you're thinking about food, you're already starting to make a little bit of insulin. And by the time you chew it, your insulin is actually beginning to spike. And there's a whole elaborate system to coordinate the amount of insulin that's produced in the gut. There are these amazing signals that come from the gut. Those are called glucagon-like peptides and GLP-1 and GIP-1. And these things literally sense nutrients in the gut and tell the pancreas to make more insulin. And so all of that elaborate symphony is is required to um, metabolize nutrients. It's incredibly ancient. It's evolved in our bodies over you know hundreds of millions of years and uh, or billions of years. And yet, you know, when we try to replace it with these stat static tools like measuring glucose and measuring insulin, it just doesn't work very well. It's a it's a crude replacement. Um, what what is the typical response of a healthy person to a meal? What does the insulin look like? You know, the reason why I ask is you mentioned there's short acting, there's long acting. Mm -hmm. You know, does the body produce different types of insulin and how does it orchestrate a response to a meal? So our body produces only one type, but but there are different descriptions of the of the insulin secretion. So we dribble a little bit of insulin into our blood continuously. And the beauty of our own pancreas, the non diabetic pancreas, is it's secreted directly into into the blood. So it's an endocrine organ, and the insulin that we make lasts only for a few minutes. So um, we're always dripping in a little bit of insulin, and when we need more, we can drip a little more into our bodies. And there are these cells, again, that are sensing glucose, the so-called pancreatic beta cells, that coordinate that to try to make sure that your blood glucose is at the set point. Now, again, in response to a meal, what happens is there are some neural uh, inputs to insulin, um, perhaps through smell and taste. And then also there's a there's this amazing program that happens in the gut where once the nutrients are passed into the gut, there are these cells in the gut, small intestine as well as the large intestine that sense nutrients, and they make hormones called GLP-1 and GIP-1. That's glucagon-like peptides and GIP. And that and those things go through through the portal vein directly to liver and pancreas, and they basically tell the pancreas to make more insulin. So if, if you inject the same amount of carbohydrate into the vein versus the gut, you make much more insulin when it goes in the gut because of this system, the so-called incretin effect. And so this system is the thing that, that sort of coordinates and amplifies the insulin. So by the time the blood glucose begins to rise from a meal, GLP-1 and GIP-1 are already increased, and then they amplify the insulin secretion. And there's a so-called first phase and second phase of insulin secretion. There's a big spike early on in a meal. 
it's unclear whether that whether that always happens or if that's only an experimental uh, anomaly when you inject glucose or you give a bolus of glucose in the gut. But there is a first phase and a second phase. There's these, like a big wave and a small wave. The first wave is quite narrow. The, the second one is very long. Um, there's a guy named Jerry Grodsky who was at UCSF who described this years ago. And so, again, this is happening throughout the day as we eat. And and it's not just insulin. Um, there are other hormones that, that are involved in metabolism as well. And moreover, when you make too much insulin, uh, glucagon comes up, and that's the hormone that works against the actions of insulin. So it's a sort of counter hormone to insulin. And in some forms of diabetes, glucagon is really in excess. So it's this elaborate symphony. And again, it's quite ancient. It's present in, in very primitive organ, uh, organisms going way, way back. You can see insulin in things like sea squirts. <laughs> and insulin is present in flies. Uh, <laughs> I, I, have, I have a close friend who's a type 1 diabetes researcher who discovered these insulin-like peptides that are present in the fruit fly. So all of this stuff is highly conserved, and, and again, these are these fundamental primal signals that tell us what direction our metabolism is going, either building up metabolism, which is anabolic, or breaking it down, which is catabolic. And when we're anabolic, insulin is the driving hormone for this. So, all right, I have, I have a question here about um, the pancreas. Does it make insulin on demand, or does it also have a storage form of it that it calls upon? Yeah, it, that's a great question. It turns out the pancreas, so what happens with insulin is within these pancreatic beta cells, if you look at an ultra-structural level, you see these. You see that there are crystals of insulin, and insulin is packed into this tight, very tight latticework of a matrix. And it appears to have genetically evolved so that it, it, it can fit into this matrix super tight. And the there's like this crystal lattice and zinc is part of it and it gets packed into these tight little crystals and then those crystals are basically thrown into the blood like like uh, salt crystals and then they dissolve over time. Um, we maintain over a week's worth of insulin in our bodies at any one time and we're constantly producing it. But much of the dynamic capacity actually happens from secretion of pre-existing granules, you don't and and you don't need very many to really change the, the blood glucose. It's it's a remarkable system. How much? How many crystals to store up? Is that informed by what you eat, and does that change over time? Yeah, in general, a lot of that is directed by a pancreatic transcription factor called PDX1. Though there are many others that do this as well. Now, there's something else called MAFA, and there's something called MAFB. And there's a Pax transcription factor, uh, something called ISL. So there are these things that um, that nuclear uh, encoded transcription factors, and what they do is they're these proteins that together can act to direct production of particular genes. And the insulin promoter has been studied in diabetes research for for many, many, many years most famously by a scientist named Bill Rudder, who was at, who was at UCSF many years ago. And he noticed that, uh, that the pancreatic beta cell made more insulin um, RNA in response to increasing glucose and began to try to figure out what are the factors that are directing gene expression. And fast forward, 
decades, a lot of the things that bind to the promoter of insulin have now been cloned. And again, PDX1 and many of these other transcription factors. And what they seem to do is they work in these reinforced networks where one directs the expression of another, which directs expression of another, which directs expression of another. And in aggregate, they define a mature beta cell. And these transcription factors represent the difference in between a beta cell and, say, an alpha cell, a cell that makes glucagon. Though, oddly enough, you can perturb, uh, experimentally perturb beta cells or alpha cells and get them through extreme manipulation to start to show phenotypes that are closer to each other. But a, a lot of these mature, very specialized cells have these unique transcription factors. And again, what's what's cool about it is the beta cell is sensing glucose as well. So those transcription factors are not just responding to glucose, they're also reinforcing the mature phenotype. They say, this is who we are. We are a beta cell. This is what we make. We make, we make insulin, we sense glucose. So all the things that would define a beta cell, like glucose sensing, um, all those apparatuses are also under the control of these key transcription factors in the pancreas. So have uh, scientists studied the uh, structure of the beta cells of people that have uh, you know, passed away that had diabetes? Yeah, we've done this in my lab, and many other, other people have as well. Um, I've done this. Uh, I, I've published on this now for... Uh, many years, I've been collaborating with a scientist at the University of Florida. His name is uh, Dr. Mark Atkinson, and he runs a really important project that was funded by the JDRF called NPOD, which is basically um, organ donors of people who have diabetes. And um, it was a really visionary idea. Dr. Atkinson realized that there were things we could only learn about type 1 diabetes by actually getting the pancreas of people who had died. And so he began this organ donation project. And fast forward uh, some 12 years, and it's been an enormous success. And so now there's this huge collection of, of, of tissues from people, from either those who had type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes um, or, or non-diabetic controls across a range of ages. And my research lab and labs all around the world have been studying these tissues. And so we carried out um, a huge project that took us almost 10 years <laughs> uh, that was published a couple of years ago in JCENM. And we just wanted to know how many beta cells are around in the pancreas of a person with type 1 diabetes. Um, and do the beta cells go away over time? And does, is there any possible attempt at making new cells? If they're deficient, are the, is the pancreas trying to make new cells? Um, and so we looked at this using, of course, it's a static system. You can't move forward in time. You can only, you have basically dead tissue under the microscope. But we tried to look for markers of, of new cells, and, and we use markers of cell cycle entry or cellular proliferation or mitosis. Um, and what we found was there was very little attempt at making new beta cells. Um, and we also looked for evidence of stem cells in the pancreas by looking around the pancreatic ducts and trying to find new cells that are sort of spitting off from what might be like an embryonic origin, and we couldn't see it. Um, and we also looked for beta cells that might be newly created, having switched from alpha cells or some other progenitor, but we couldn't see evidence mm -hmm. of the so-called transdifferentiation. So at least 
the conclusion that we made, and again, this, uh, this paper is now published and freely accessible, it's not behind paywalls, um, suggests that uh, people with type 1 diabetes are not attempting to make new beta cells and that it's a relatively static situation. And I was very worried about this when I first realized it. You know, I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. I care for people with type 1. Right. And I'm running a beta cell research lab. And I basically had convinced myself that at least in the disease state that I care about the most, there weren't any new beta cells. And it upset me. And I began to worry, well, what am I doing in my career that can make a difference for these folks? And and from that sprang my interest in, in some of these other treatment modalities, like low carb, uh, just because I, I felt like uh, re- super advanced cell therapy kind of um, treatments where we regenerate the ability to make insulin, that that stuff could be a long ways off. If the pancreas yeah, well, isn't trying to do it on its own, how could we possibly amplify something that's not happening on its own? Well, is the is the pancreas trying to make new beta cells, but that's um, that effort is sabotaged by the immune response that destroys. So we, things? yeah, we looked for a, an immune response and we couldn't see it. Um, and and again, of course, the problem uh, in, with these tissues is that people live a long time, and so by the time you harvest the pancreas, it's possible that the autoimmune destruction has been occurring for for years or decades. Uh, back in the day when people died at the point of diagnosis with type 1 diabetes, there were quite a few tissues that were harvested. There's a group in Scotland that um, was able to save the pancreas specimens from people who had died at diagnosis. And many of them have the immune system, immune destruction. But by the time you go decades out, what you see is a relatively empty pancreas with not a lot of stuff going on. Well, I had thought there was a, you know, a procedure whereby uh, certain people were you know, uh, there was a transplant of beta cells into, you know, a type 1 patient or patients. That's right. And I thought, I'm just remembering that they responded well for a period of time, but then the response went away and that's right. like the so, cells were okay and then attacked. Yeah. Um, so the Edmonton Protocol um, by James Shapiro and colleagues um, in Edmonton, Canada, they came up with a protocol to be able to isolate islets. And these are these are organ donors, brain dead organ donors, and then they actually um, infuse them via the portal vein directly into the liver. And so they float into the liver, and then they're sitting inside a patient's liver, and they're secreting insulin. And um, that can allow somebody to be insulin independent for a few years. Uh, but virtually all of those patients then end up on insulin replacement to some degree. And and now a majority of the patients in the original trial have had at least a second infusion of insulin. So unfortunately, it doesn't lead to lasting cure of diabetes. Um, it's and, and moreover, the people who receive those islet cell transplants require these very serious immunosuppressants that place them at risk for other diseases. Um, now, there are also people who've had whole pancreas transplant, and, and that's a oh, wow. m- much more challenging operation. They, they tend to do a little bit better. They also have to have um, immunosuppression for life, which, right, is yeah. a, which is a really challenging situation. And by the way, it's worth pointing out that people who live with type 1 diabetes, who learn all of the tricks, who become these super experts, many of them live into their 70s and 80s and have uh, and even as old as 92, and have great lives. Um, and so 
uh, the di complications from diabetes are not certain. Many people have learned to sort of solve the riddle of living with diabetes, and they're able to achieve near normal blood sugars. It's not easy. It takes a lot of hypervigilance, but it can be done. Yeah, I was making my way through uh, Richard Bernstein's book, The Diabetes Solution, and I guess he was a type one, and he's I guess now in his 80s if he's still around. But uh, you know, he's one of those examples. He's learned how to manage it and live for quite a long time with it. Yeah, so Dr. Richard Bernstein is a person who who lives with diabetes. He's in his 80s. He was diagnosed a long time ago, more than 50 years ago, and went to medical school um, because he wanted to be able to to work as a physician and communicate to others what he had learned about living with diabetes. And he consumes a low-carbohydrate, high-protein uh, nutritional regimen and is able to keep his blood sugars in near-normal range and has had really super tight control. So we use the so-called hemoglobin A1C to measure average glucose. A typical average glucose um, would be somewhere around 100 milligrams per deciliter or so. That would be a hemoglobin A1C of 5%. Um, there are people with type 1 diabetes who have hemoglobin A1Cs of 10%. Probably the average in the United States is around 8 or 8.5, wow. um, depending upon the condition. And the problem is those people are at pretty high long-term risk of complication. But Dr. Richard Bernstein is able to, and, and many others have been able to figure out how to avoid the highs and lows of diabetes. And what they typically do is avoid enriched carbohydrates, and they're able to get their blood sugars in a very tight range. And by the way, they, they don't live their lives like, like they're some sort of medical experiment. It's actually quite freeing when you don't have to worry about what your blood sugar is going to be. You get to think about other things. And, and, yeah, and, he's a, and Dr. Bernstein's a great example, but there are many others who have learned these tricks Another, so Dr. Bernstein has this terrific book called The Bernstein Diabetes Solution, which I think is a really essential reading for people with type 1 diabetes. Another excellent resource is Adam Brown's book, Bright Spots and Landmines. And he views it as the sort of manual he wished, he, he wishes he had been given when he was diagnosed with type 1. And he's a guy in his mid-30s who's really brilliant, who writes about all the ways to live with and thrive with type 1 diabetes. And he focuses on nutrition, just like Dr. Bernstein does, but also other aspects of health and wellness, including sleep and, and mindfulness and exercise and sort of trying to put it all together. Um, and he has a very realistic, thoughtful, open uh, approach. Uh, yeah, I'm just really inspired by him. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's a couple of things I still wanted to go over with you. So you mentioned low-carb meals. You know, when we were talking about the difficulty of calculating how much insulin and what types to to have yeah. when you're eating a meal, especially a complex one, I thought to myself, hmm, you know, what if you just eat one type of thing, you know, just chicken, and then later <laughs> on you eat just the uh, carb. And but another solution would be, I guess, a, a very low-carb meal where it's mostly protein and fat, and why does that work better for people when they dose themselves well, with insulin? You know, so humans are free range. We cruise around and we, we try different things. And if you live an incredibly regimented life and you eat the exact same thing 
breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, you can come close to very tight control. And I know many people who have not discovered low-carb strategies who do exactly that. And so for breakfast, they eat the exact same thing every day. And for lunch, the same exact thing. And then dinner, they have some variability, but they might have five things and they've sort of worked it out. But they don't get to have the spontaneity of life um, to have snacks or, or to do other things. And that's, and by the way, that's assuming that their activity is also static and it's not changing. Mm. Um, but you can do that and you can get blood sugars that are pretty close, uh, not always, but pretty close to normal. But still, you're going you're gonna to have some changes if you wake up and you're stressed or if you put the insulin in a spot that's sort of that's used up that has some scar tissue. So the, again, the other approach is to simply avoid the uh, carbohydrates, and carbs are the major macronutrient um, that you can't metabolize from a lack of insulin. So it's a brilliant observation that Dr. Bernstein had, which, which goes, if I consume less carbohydrate, I need less insulin, and if I use less insulin, I'll have less opportunity to make a mistake. So that's the so-called rule of small numbers. And so if you take a if you take very small amounts of insulin-requiring um, foods and you focus on protein instead of consuming a lot of enriched carbs, then you only need a little bit of insulin, and you can do that, and you're less likely to over- or underdose. Um, and so Dr. Bernstein uses a low-carb, high-protein approach, and he actually covers for protein. So one key piece of this is though we require insulin to metabolize carbohydrates, we also require insulin to metabolize protein. And if you switch from a 70% or 50% carbohydrate diet to a diet that has quite a bit of protein in it, the excess protein will turn to glucose on a 60% uh, ratio. So if you consume at a meal 100 grams of protein, that's effectively 60 grams of carbohydrate. And moreover, the absorption is completely different than glucose. It could be absorbed over eight hours. So it's a little bit unpredictable, and it requires some trial and error. And one common mistake that people with type 1 diabetes who try out low-carb can have is they will go from eating high-carb meals and lots of insulin to simply eating, say, a steak and some salad, but then they won't cover the, the steak with uh, long-acting insulin. And, uh, and the problem is that, you know, if you had, the, say, spaghetti with low-fat spaghetti sauce, and that meal would be almost pure carbohydrate, and you know that it would be absorbed fairly quickly within one to four hours. But if you sit down to, say, for instance, a, a giant ribeye steak, that's going to be absorbed over over eight or ten hours, and so coming up with a dose of insulin for that big bolus of protein is a little bit tricky. What Dr. Bernstein does is he uses an intermediate form of insulin called human regular insulin instead of the modern short-acting insulins. But what a lot of people do who are on pumps or have short-acting insulins is they'll split up the dose. They'll take half now and half two or three hours later. Uh, but it requires some calculation and some tricks. But but again, what happens when people start to play around with this is they start to discover that they can get their blood sugars in a much more normal range. And uh, and the best way I found to do this is to just do a low carb weekend where you start on a Friday and you head and you do low carb all the way to Monday morning and plan out your meals beforehand and figure out the kinds of things you'd like to eat. And then on Monday morning, sit down and ask yourself, how do you feel? 
and and was the weekend easier? Do you feel better? And moreover, uh, are were your blood sugars better? And what I often hear is that people's blood sugars are much better. They're in a in a tighter range, and they feel like they have less volatility. It's less upsetting to them. And moreover, there's a a much lower stress level because lacking that volatility, people start to just live life and and forget about about the highs and lows and the anxieties that are associated. Yeah, because I pictured myself being a you know I'm not, but pictured being a type one diabetic. I mean. Everything you do, I mean, it must consume your thoughts all day yep. long, all night long. Everything you do, am I going to exercise? What am I going to eat? When did I eat last? How do right. I feel? You know? Yeah, and <laughs> I so I think of that as the so, as the cognitive load of diabetes. It's the burden. It's what what is required to to you know to keep driving down the road with diabetes. And for some people, it's it's near constant, and and they never get a chance to just think and breathe. And we in the medical profession often have this distorted view of people with diabetes that it's, quote, simple or, quote, pretty easy. And the reality is people with type 1 diabetes try incredibly hard. Um, It's just that the tools that that we provide them are quite ineffective. And so when they don't work, it's stressful and it requires all this calculation. The analogy that I often use is it's sort of like these people you know who are constantly checking their their email on their phones. Right. And if you're talking to them and they're sort of looking down at their phone, and then they're looking back at you and they're looking down at your phone. Mm-hmm. That level of of engagement in another activity is just incredibly distracting, right? If I do that around my wife, she's she'll she'll be like, "So, are you, you going to talk to me? You're going to you're going to look at your phone." <laughs> <laughs> but um, imagine if. The thing that you were looking at was not your phone, but you're thinking about diabetes and you're thinking about your blood sugar, the fact that it was 157 with an arrow going up 15 minutes ago. And you're thinking, well, maybe I'll check my CGM again, or I'm worried it's going to keep going up, or what should I do? Or maybe I should go for a walk. And um, we don't spend enough time talking about the cognitive sort of aspects of living with diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, but I think it's incredibly important. And uh, from my perspective, it's probably the most important thing, because when you feel better and the tools work, you're able to reduce that burden and also at the same time improve your glucose control. Um, And, uh, you know, people should be focusing on feeling good (laughs) first and foremost. Yeah, it seems like the the medical profession and, you know, uh, know, everyone's worried about low blood sugar all the time, but not nearly as much about you know, versus high blood sugar. And that that seems to push people in a direction where they have to worry about constantly, you know, having food, keeping their blood sugars up, even if it means, you know, having more carbs than they normally should. It, it seems like there's that bias. I don't know if you observe that. Well, certainly in the hospital, the, the nurses love to, quote, run their patients sweet which from what I can tell means a, a fear of hypoglycemia. And of course, the the real problem is somebody whose blood sugar is high. Is that people actually have a higher risk of low blood sugar who are routinely running high. And the reason is if you're floating around two or 300 milligrams per deciliter and use a big dose of insulin, it's easy to overshoot and to end up running low. It's like trying to land a helicopter at high speed from 10,000 feet. Uh, eventually, you got to slow down, and so it's easier if you're relatively close to the ground. Uh, you know, it, 
from my perspective, it's all about reducing volatility. That's the key. And again, right. you, you reduce volatility by, first of all, you have to measure it. You have to have continuous glucose monitoring. And uh, Dexcom G6 is one way to do it, but there are several other FDA-approved devices on the market, including the Abbott uh, Freestyle Libre. And uh, for people with diabetes, it's just a beautiful device because it tells you all this variability that was hidden that you didn't even know about. And then the big challenge for both people with type 1 diabetes as well as their healthcare team is how do you use that information? And, you know, I've been wearing a Dexcom G6 for, you know, a few months now. And, um, uh-huh. you know, I can see like, um, you know, normally you go in for a blood test and they say, oh, you're, you're fasting, sugar is over 100. That's not good. But right. that doesn't, that ignores all day long and all night long what's going on. And, you know, I've used it to observe in myself and my wife the effect of certain meals. You know, we'll see like this restaurant, for some reason, it looks like the food's good, but it just, you know, it, our sugar goes way up. Uh, this other restaurant, same food, you know, same like chicken dish or whatever it is, and we don't nearly get that much of an effect. And, yep. you know, we found foods that were very surprising. They really, you know, spike your sugar. And it's just, it's interesting all the things you learned. But I wanted to ask you, what, so what have you observed um, in seeing patients that use a CGM? What have they observed that was helpful to them? I mean, it, it, so it's exactly as you say. There are effects. So first of all, the, the most immediate thing for somebody with type 1 diabetes is just, are is your is your long-acting dose of insulin appropriate? So if you go to sleep and you're sleeping, you're not awake, you're not you're not aware of your glucose, but having an alarm that tells you if your blood sugar is low or high in the middle of the night is an awesome thing, incredibly helpful. So at a basic level, that's amazing. Also, if you are, for instance, an athlete and you have and you go out to exercise and you have a low blood sugar, um, being able to de- detect that your blood sugar is low and going lower before you actually go low is is just wonderful. Um, And I have friends with type 1 diabetes who feel much safer driving just because they they don't want to have a low blood sugar when they're behind the wheel. So Mm -hmm. those are obvious things. But then also in terms of like the insulin doses, doses will change over time. And so being able to come up with the right long-acting dose makes an enormous difference. As far as the meals go, uh, I believe that you know, these CGMs will be incredibly useful for type 2 diabetes and even to prevent obesity. Um, and there's been quite a bit of talk about this. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Kevin Sayer, the um, the CEO of Dexcom, actually gave the Dexcom G6 or G5 to, to people on The Biggest Loser, this TV show. Oh, nice. And apparently they use that as a tool and and so the rumor is that some of the people who lost the most weight were the people who learned to avoid carbohydrates by watching their blood sugar. So if you think about it, it's a really beautiful biomarker for being exposed to carbohydrates. Um, and I expect that within 10 years, we'll have very small, lightweight, uh, disposable CGMs made by Dexcom and other competitors that you can buy over the counter and you'll wear and they'll tell you what your glucose is for a few days, and then you toss it in the trash. Um, right. And and Dexcom and Google have actually set up a partnership to try to create such a device. And uh, I think their thought is that it's going to be a direct-to-consumer 
thing that will be useful for type 2 diabetes or obesity. I would love to be able to know what my blood sugar is all the time. I actually wore a Dexcom about a year ago and enjoyed it and, and learned a lot from it. Um, one thing I learned was my, my blood sugars run low every night. <laughs> and I don't have diabetes, but my my natural blood sugar was around 55 milligrams per deciliter. And that's probably because I'm a runner and I'm skinny. Yeah, I noticed with myself that, um, you know, my sugars will go low until about 8 a.m. You know, I get up late, but then they'll start rising and rising, and you know, until I wake up, and they'll stay at a certain level. And no matter what I do, they won't go down until I have my first meal. And then if it's a good meal, they'll go down. So let's say it goes to like 100, then mm-hmm. I have my first meal, I'm gonna go down to let's say 80, 85. So it's, it, and I don't, I can't find any resources yet that talk about you know, how blood sugar changes throughout the day in response to different, you know, hormones cycling and everything. Do you have any we, insight into that? Uh, no, just that the, the we're really in in the very early days of this. And there has been a an incorrect assumption in the diabetes research community that blood sugars need to sit in a very narrow range. So we, we're not that aware of the physiological variation that occurs. Uh, but my guess is it's exactly as you say. Probably blood sugar should rise after a meal up to 120 or 130, and they should be as low as 50 or 60. Uh, but we don't have, um, you know, large population-based studies that are done with CGMs to to understand this. Um, they uh, several have recently just been funded, and we'll have much more information about it. But it's interesting. I mean, these these devices were really designed for people with diabetes. So the sort of, you know, quantified self, human hacking use of CGM is a very new phenomenon. No, I've noticed if I have a meal with, you know, very little to zero carbs, you know, my sugar may go up, you know, 10, 15 points, let's say from like 85 to 100. But yeah. if I have a meal with carbs in it, it can go to 120, 130. You know, I noticed also too, if it goes up, you know, and I go for a walk for 20 minutes, it brings it down really fast. And I guess the, uh, you know, the muscles uh, can you know, have a, a great hunger for glucose and they can suck it out of That's the blood right. is my, my assumption. That's right. And they can do so in an insulin independent manner. So the muscle can, in a state of energy depletion. So if you go out and exercise really vigorously, uh, you're depleting all the energy that's stored in the glycogen in your muscle. And what happens is there's an emergency signal that says, hey, we've depleted all our energy. We need some more fuel. And so then glucose is pumped in from the blood into the muscle without insulin. And by that mechanism, people with type 1 diabetes can have very severe low blood sugars with exercise. And uh, sadly, a lot of people with type 1 will go out for exercise and they're carrying piles of carbohydrate to try to counteract that. very frustrating for folks. Um, it, now, I, I I will say that I, I'm a low-carb uh, ketogenic nutrition uh, hobbyist myself, and the philosophy there is once you switch your metabolism to being primarily fat, once you're essentially fat burning, and, and fat is the major macronutrient that you're consuming, then you can go out and exercise, and when you do so, your muscle is primarily burning fat. It doesn't need much in the way of carbohydrate. And and there are these extreme examples of this. There's a guy who ran in this 100-mile race out in California, the Western States 100. His name is Zach Bitter, and he ran and and consumed less than 100 grams of carbohydrates over 100 miles. Wow. 
And so this is somebody whose metabolism has adapted to fat. And by the way, if you look at a CGM of somebody like that, they have very little in the way of glucose variation, as you'd imagine, because they're basically primarily burning fat as their macronutrient. So when people with type 1 diabetes do this, and when they when they go on very low carb and they emphasize fat in their diet, they can have blood sugars that are also very, very flat. And they can exercise and avoid a lot of the exercise associated with low blood sugar, which is really exciting. Why isn't there a, a continuous insulin monitor, a continuous ketone monitor? The continuous ketone monitors will probably happen. Um, there are the chemical methods to be able to measure ketones are there, and it's probably only a matter of time before the major companies add ketones to the sensors along with glucose, and they just have a sandwich sensor. Insulin will, will be much, much tougher. Uh, to measure insulin continuously, you need an enzyme, and uh, I don't know. It'll, maybe you could do it with antibodies and fluorescence or something like that, but by the traditional method, it doesn't work. The way we measure glucose is we have an enzyme called glucose oxidase, and it generates charge. So glucose goes through the enzyme, it gets oxidized, and an electron is formed that's transmitted down the wire that's measured by the device. That's how the Dexcom continuous glucose monitor works. And the same thing essentially occurs with a different enzyme with ketones. So the so point of care testing that involves the production of energy is relatively straightforward. The problem is measuring a protein that doesn't involve the transfer of energy, like in as in measuring of of insulin. That's going to be much, much tougher. Mm, okay. Well, very good. Um, Dr. Krishna, it's been a great call. Um, are there any last uh, things that you wanted to discuss that I've left out? You know, we covered a lot of ground, but I know you're going to respect your time here. So, Well, I, I just want to say that it, it's tough to, to, to thrive with type 1 diabetes, but there's a lot of wonderful examples of people who are doing it. And I'm most excited about, the, about building the global community of people who live with type 1 they find that they can learn an immense amount from each other. And there's lots of resources where they do this. And one is, again, it's this low-carb community type 1 grit, but there are many others, including a, a social media place called Beyond Type 1. And uh, mm -hmm. again, my hope is that over time, we'll see these more advanced tools like automated insulin pumps and combined with low-carb and maybe even some medicines that people will take, uh, and it'll begin to decrease the burden and allow people with type 1 to you know, live long, healthy lives. Well, that's great. Well, Dr. Kushner, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. 
My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.